back. Pulls up for three. Boom! Knocks it down. Curry from the corner at three. Puts it in. For overtime. Makes it. Garrett. Welcome to the MVP cast from me, Mark Woods. My guest is someone who ended the season on a big high last weekend, a winner's medal from the WBBL trophy with Leicester Riders in that epic final with Durham. She's been GB International. She spent a lot of time in the States and I'm glad she's joining us here. Christina Gaskin, thanks for joining the MVP cast. Thank you very much for having me. You have a fascinating and very illuminating blog and if anyone wants to read it it's at christinagaskin.squarespace.com and one of the the headlines that you had on it and you said yourself i guess half joking but maybe not entirely that a clickbait headline on it where you yeah. said that college basketball nearly killed me now you went you went to fordham which uh, for people who don't know is a, is a university in in new york city but your experience i mean you grew up like lots of young British basketballers with this amazing, this dream, this American dream of going to, to college in America. Before we talk about what happened when you got there, talk about the journey that you got. I mean, how, how many years had you thought about this is what I want to do with my life before it made it, you made it happen? So interestingly enough, I actually was, um, I was born in England, but I was raised in America. Um, I spent a lot of younger years in, in Detroit, Michigan. Um, and so getting back to America before basketball came on the scene was always something that I wanted to do. I felt like it was almost my home country, although I wasn't born there. And so after starting to play basketball around 12 years old, um, when I moved into secondary school over here, I, it was only then that I sort of started to, to realize the opportunity of going to the States. And I would say even at that age, um, it was still fairly new um, and a few and far between for British athletes to obtain scholarships to go to the States. And by the time I was um, doing my A-levels and studying with Barkin Abbey and, and playing in the WBBL team there, um, still there wasn't uh, anyone that had gone to the States, graduated and returned back to the UK. So there was still a lot of naivety around exactly what it entailed, the experience as a whole and, and, and also the recruiting process. And so um, we were fairly ignorant to some degree, but to, to go back to your question in terms of my pathway in, into basketball, I started playing when I was uh, 12, like I said, at the age of 14, I played under 16 national team. Um, that was probably my earliest accolade. And then went all the way through the junior ranks playing national team at various age groups. Um, I tore my ACL, unfortunately, quite young. And so that was a bit of a hurdle for me to get over before college. But then um, at the European Championships, like a lot of other elite athletes that, that play in today, I got recruited by several schools. And I probably narrowed it down to 10 or 12 schools that I was interested in and then sort of started going through some selection criteria in terms of you know, where, where would I like to go? Um, what sort of schools stand out for me? Um, and then I took it from there, really, and, and worked with the colleges that I had, at the, the coaches I had at the time, sorry, to narrow down the process and understand what would be the best fit for me. Um, and then, uh, like most other athletes, I went on three recruiting visits and took in as much information as possible and then, then tried to make a decision. And why Fordham? What, what attracted you there and made that the, the choice? So 
I narrowed it down between Fordham University, which is in New York, and we played in the A10 conference, and Long Beach State in California. And actually, at the time, Ella Clark uh, was playing at Long Beach, and so I was very enticed to go to go there. Um, and obviously, who doesn't want to be in California of all places? Um, but when it came down to actually weighing up the decision, having already gone through a serious knee injury, I was very acutely aware that academics also played a massive part in my decision and Fordham is considered just below Ivy League in terms of the level of education so a lot of people that don't get into Ivy League schools and um, will actually end up at Fordham so it's very competitive and I knew that if anything was to happen again and I was to pick up another serious injury I wanted to know that I was setting myself up not just basketball wise but academically to to have the best experience possible so that's really what convinced me um to to sort of sway my decision to Fordham in particular. So you get there, and obviously that's the environment you've worked hard to get this this offer and this scholarship, etc. Initially, did it go okay, or or was there a point in time where it started to go sour? So when I arrived as a freshman, it was a very interesting situation because my coach was new that year. I was actually recruited um, to another from another school um, that she was coaching at. And then when she transferred to Fordham, she then uh, recruited me there as well. And so she, it was her first year with the program. Um, I think previously, the, the previous, at least the previous year, I think they went one and however many games they played. I think they only won one game on the season. And... So it was an interesting situation because I was recruited with eight other freshmen. We had a really big freshman class um, and of which the coach only recruited two of us. So the old coach that had left had recruited the other the six players. And immediately upon coming into the program, one of the first things my coach said to me when my parents were actually still there um, and I was just settling into to campus was, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get rid of the, the other six players. I, I don't really, you know, I don't want them here. I don't think that they're Division One athletes. I'm just going to slowly, like, get rid of them as the year goes on. And that kind of was the first indication to me that perhaps she wasn't who I thought she was in terms of a coach. And um, it's something that stuck with me. But during the course of the, my freshman year, my first year, I actually played a lot for a freshman. Um, I started quite a few games and was playing 25 plus minutes which is quite unusual but I realized very quickly going into my sophomore year after my coach achieved what she said she was in terms of removing certain people from the program and recruiting other people that she that she wanted to play um her attitude and behavior towards me changed very dramatically um did you I mean at that age we're 18 19 I mean you're obviously college coaches have a huge amount of power influence and you know you're like any basketball coach, you're beholden to them them for minutes. I mean, were you in? Did you feel in any situation at that point? We talk now about duty of care, and there's you know the idea of whistleblowing, etc. But did you feel in any way there was a place for you to go to, I guess, receive support or or to have someone essentially to to, to talk to and say, is this okay? Can you examine my environment and and be satisfied that this is satisfactory? So I think that the trouble, I think the trouble is it's twofold. The first issue that I ran into was we were so heavily manipulated on a, a weekly and daily basis in the sense that 
any of anyone started to seem in any way disappointed, frustrated, or um, lacked the motivation to complete what was asked of us from the coaches, or we felt like, you know, we were being pushed too hard, our scholarship was constantly held over our heads um, in the sense that regularly we would get told, you know, if if you don't want to be here, then that's fine because I have a thousand other people that would love to, to be in your position right now. So if you did have any doubts about whether you were being treated fairly, they were quickly erased by the fear that you would lose your scholarship because you have to, you know, appreciate that from my perspective, this is something I've wanted since I was a very young teenager. And this was the the last dream that I had in terms of basketball. This is my ultimate goal. And I didn't have a future of basketball after this point. And so for me to consider speaking up and then potentially losing my scholarship, it just, it wasn't, um, warranted enough for me and then I think as I did get older and and more mature throughout my time in the states there were opportunities and moments where I would stand up for myself not only to the coach um but to other people that surrounded the program but there were only repercussions that came with that and for example the the athletic director um, who you would normally go to 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 speak to about these kind of issues and at the end of the year they do surveys to each athletic program asking for a review on the year and you sort of rank your coaches and the the staff and the program on different dimensions and there's opportunity for open-ended responses as well and I think perhaps after my sophomore year I it may have been my junior year as well but I was very um colorful with my responses about exactly what had happened Mm -hmm. that year and how I'd been treated and a few injuries that I'd gone through and how people had concussions and were expected to come back sooner than what the concussion protocol told them and a whole host of different um, examples and experiences. And that survey is is meant to remain confidential, but obviously in the ways in which I answered it, it became very clear that it was me that answered uh, that in that way. And as a result, I was called into the office by the by my head coach and sat down and you know very directly questioned on some of my responses and and intimidated in a way to sort of suggest like this is not okay you you can't speak like this so yes in an ideal world there are meant to be places that you can go and people that you can go and speak to but unfortunately there's like a lot of um there's a lot of corruption even when it comes down to the physios and injuries I think this is one of my uh, biggest struggles and uh, not just for myself but for other athletes that were on on my team if we had an, an injury we were you would expect that your physio was the one that would protect you if, if you weren't ready to go back on court and your um your injury meant that like you would be in pain or you wouldn't be able to perform in a way that was expected of you you would expect that your physio would be able to tell your coach like nope we've still got a, a, we're still a week out from her being able to perform but because the way that it was structured, at least at my school, and I think from what I'm hearing from other people at a lot of schools, the head coach sort of runs the the top of the program and the physio and their assistant assistant coaches and uh, academic advisors and everyone else sits below them in terms of the ranking and and level of importance. And so if a head coach is putting pressure um, onto a physio for, for certain people to be back in practice earlier than they should, then the physio wants to appease the coach and so uh, more often than not you'd have people training that 
um, weren't ready to train and sort of um, doing permanent damage to their bodies. I know people that have, have since graduated and, and tried to go and play pro and they're still dealing with some of the injuries that, you know, who knows if they had have dealt with them more adequately in, in college and been protected, then maybe their bodies would have been able to, to play a little bit longer in terms of their professional careers. So there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that I don't think you can understand from phone calls, emails and, you know, a three day recruiting visit. I mean, one of the things that intrigued me that you wrote about was, and as you've just said, was that coach's reaction. But this wasn't just a one-off. This was something that could happen on day-to-day in practice. And it seemed to be, in your words, there was a call for an attitude adjustment if they felt that you needed that. What right. about, what, what form did that take? So attitude adjustment and I mean even you saying it now kind of makes me feel um (laughs) some kind of physical response just because (laughs) it was that brutal but um essentially we had a rule in our team we had like many teams that I played on and not too dissimilar to teams that I played on before I got to the states um in terms especially with national team and at the elite level uh, we were expected not to um to go out 24 hours before uh, a game and, and not to go out sorry, not to go out 48 hours before a game and, and 24 hours before a practice. And so often, you know, we rarely ever had two days off in a row. Um, so we really didn't get the opportunity to go out and socialize and live a normal college life like people probably would over here. But if people were to break certain rules, and and for an example, with my coach, it would be as simple as not bringing your training reversible um to to a road game and instead having to wear a Fordham t-shirt um of the right color but just you know you, you'd forgotten your uniform you hadn't and we're not talking about playing uniform we're talking about practice uniform and I remember one day we was due to leave for a road trip and uh, fortunately enough we have cleaners that that did our washing for us and we would so we'd put our laundry all of our basketball and sports related clothes on a loop that would be washed overnight and returned to us the next morning into our locker room and so I headed over to the locker room like I always do before we head away for a road trip and I was picking up everything I needed and noticed that I didn't have my um, practice jerseys. And we ran out of time, so I couldn't chase up exactly where they were and I tried to look for them as best as possible. But as soon as I got on the bus, I said to my coach, look, I, I put them in the wash yesterday and they, they must have been misplaced because they haven't come back on my laundry loop. She nodded, didn't say a single word to me and I sort of carried on to the back of the bus. Practice uh, came round the next day, we were on the road um, and I wore a t-shirt like you know to, to ensure we had two colors like necessary and uh, no, no comment was made although I received a message from one of the assistants when I got back to school to say um yeah you'll have an attitude adjustment tomorrow morning at 5 a.m um for for getting your practice jersey on the road and my coach knew full well and I explained very clearly that I hadn't you know forgotten it I'd gone to, uh, to look for it and and it hadn't been returned to me and so attitude adjustment itself was 45 minutes worth of sprints. But ordinarily, when you're doing any kind of intense workout, you normally do um, 30 seconds of running, let's say, and then at least twice as much rest, depending on how intense uh, the running is. So let's say you're doing a 10, 12 second sprint, you'd probably have like 36 seconds rest before you go again. With attitude adjustment, it was one to one. So if you ran for 10 to 12 seconds, you had 10 to 12 seconds before you ran again. And 
often people would be, you know, be sick after workouts like this or just would be physically absolutely destroyed because it's just asking something of your body that, you know, it's, it's just humanely impossible to, to a certain degree to sustain it at least for 45 minutes. Um, and you had certain targets. It wasn't just you run as hard as you can until your body burns out. It was like, you have to make these times for these runs and we're doing this again and again until you pass. And with our program specifically, attitude adjustment only um, affected the entire team when more than three people had broken a team rule. Mm-hmm. So if more than three or four people had broken a team rule, then the entire team was pulled in for attitude adjustment. Irrelevant of, or irrespective of, sorry, if if you you know, engaged in whatever the the rule that was broken was, but it could be something as simple as not wearing the correct pair of white Nike socks. You might have worn elite socks and someone else had worn just plain white socks and and that would be considered a violation. So it was, it was fairly militant in terms of the standards that we were expected to uphold at times. I mean, in any other word, it's bullying. I mean, I mean, we've seen this in certainly in other British sports, you know, revelations that have come out about, you know, scandals where, you know, coaches have not had the right duty of care. And I, a lot of it at the time is based in theory. If we can defend the indefensible for a moment on that quest for to be better and to push people to the limits mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. But also we've also, I guess, become much more aware of, of the, the mental health impact of, of this before we even talk about the, the physical problems involved mm-hmm. for you and obviously sometimes you realize this at the time but sometimes it's or more often it's with experience afterwards but what ways did mentally did that damage you i think in several ways to be honest and i think your point um is absolutely right about you don't always realize when you're in the moment i think college in general um, is very demanding as an athlete just because I, I use the analogy a lot with my teammates when we were there about treading water. You, you never get out of the swimming pool. You're constantly treading water just to try and keep your shoulders above or to stay afloat, but you never get to get out of the pool and sit and look at the pool from the outside. So, you know, if finals were to roll around and we also had um, important games coming up, you know, would quite often walk around campus and uh, see my teammates and I'll be like, where's the water today? And they'd sort of like raise their hand towards their face as if they couldn't, they couldn't quite breathe. And we would joke about it, but it was a very real situation because, you know, I think most people are aware of, of everything that's expected of them at college. Um, but it doesn't matter how much, and I've, I've tried as well to do my due diligence, due diligence in terms of preparing um, elite athletes today that are going over, but, the physical demands on your body um, as well as the, the mental demands in terms of, you know, just completing your schoolwork. If you were with, you know, a great coach on a great program that does really support you and want the best for you and mentally challenging as it is. Um, so to add on top of that, a level of manipulation and a level of mental bullying, I guess, and pressure, it just becomes unbearable to a certain degree. And for me, um, I didn't really take a step back and realize how much this was affecting me until my junior year. And the back end of my junior year, I started to to see a counselor on campus, actually, that was completely separate and unrelated to the basketball program. I, would, I was already speaking with a sports psychologist whom my college coach prescribed. And I actually found out after after the fact that that sports psychologist had regular conversations with my head coach where my head coach would pressure him into disclosing what some of the conversations him and I were having were. 
Um, so I, I thought I was doing a great thing, but what I was really doing was just disclosing to my coach exactly how I felt at all times. And she then began to use that against me in certain ways. So it wasn't until I was able to seek help that was exclusively separate from the basketball program that I could really have a conversation with someone and have someone sit there and tell me that, no, what I'm experiencing isn't normal and, and what I'm going through isn't acceptable, that I really appreciated, um, you know, my current situation. Was there a point, I mean, given that you've had three years of all this where it kind of bottomed out and you know, that's to say that you find the sort of basement at the bottom of this this valley of despair that they'd seemingly plunged you into? I think for me, it probably took longer than than most people would appreciate. Um, a lot of people say to me, well, how did you stay in that situation for so long? You know, how did you put up with that level of stress and manipulation for so long? And I think just knowing how much I put going into it in terms of how many years I prepared for the moment of, of going to, to play basketball in college in America, I'm too competitive to just let something go. And I think that was the constant fight that I had on a daily basis. No matter how bad each day was, I was still playing basketball and playing a sport that I loved. And it was very hard for me to face and accept that I would possibly quit. Um, and a lot of people would say, you know, winners, winners never quit and quitters never win. And so I constantly reminded myself of that. And it was very difficult to accept that something that I'd planned and worked very, very hard for um, could potentially just come to an end if, if that's what I decided. Um, and in terms of, was there a specific point? I don't know that there was any one specific point. I think I wouldn't have necessarily predicted it to end in the way that it did. I just think that a current, you know, a very specific situation that I sort of elaborate on a little bit more in my blog um, where it was just the cherry on top for me. And I think I just realized that there was nothing more positive to come from this experience. There was, there was no upside. And, and I finally realized that regardless of whether I was going to stay after games and continue to work out long after people had left and, and you know, get onto the, the treadmill each day or run around the running track each day and just physically push my body as much as possible and work out with the assistant coaches I think I just realized one day that it's not me and there's no amount of um, hard work and commitment that's going to prove to my coach that I'm worth um, the opportunity. So that cherry on top was what? So it actually was unrelated to basketball a little bit, but um, there was a situation on campus where um, I think we had a few days off and um, coach's son actually was, was at a, a gathering with us and some a lot of money was stolen at this gathering and prior to the sort of the party or the gathering starting we'd informed um her son you know that's a lot of money you should probably put it away somewhere me and one of my teammates um because there's going to be a lot of people coming around you know you don't want to just leave that out and he did he, he put it away and he subsequently left the apartment and went somewhere else um and then you know throughout the night a lot of people came and came and went and he sort of came back maybe a few hours later and, and turned the lights on, turned the music off and said, who's stolen my money? And very quickly, the, the blame and the judgment shifted to, to myself and one of my teammates. And understandably, because we were the last people that sort of spoke to him or that he saw, um, you know, that, that knew where he'd put the money, etc. 
but there were a lot of other people that were passing by that could have seen as well and although you know the incident itself wasn't very unusual my coach's reaction to it wasn't acceptable and she immediately had called me and said look Christina this is a very serious situation um you need to you need to explain to me what's happened who's stolen the money did you take it or did your teammate did my teammate take the money uh, and, and started to slowly like threaten me with you know different ramifications and um, when clearly neither of us had taken the money and to sort of end any sort of discussion or debate on it I said to, to her son look, look come down to our apartment it's just below yours um you can search our rooms and we can be done with this like I understand why you're annoyed but you know let's not let's not act hasty in this situation and, and which he did he came down and he he searched my room and my teammates and he seems like fairly satisfied but then the blame started to shift not only from my coach but some of my teammates started to say you know or, you know did, did you guys steal the money like and just started to question our own behavior and then the next day uh, sorry later that evening I got another call saying that you know the coach from the head coach saying well, I'm going to get the police involved we, you know we're going to get the athletic director involved this is a really serious situation um, you need to tell us like what you know and Christina and I was co-captain at the time and so she said Christina I want you to arrange a meeting in the film room tomorrow morning at 10 a.m with everyone that was at the party and I said okay no, yeah no problem I would always abide what by what coach said I would never question her and I would always be as respectful as possible and so I agreed to arrange the meeting and I think I uh, went to sleep and the following morning she sent a text and said, I want everyone on the team at the, at the meeting. I was like, okay, that's fine. I'll make sure everyone comes. Um, and then I think earlier in that morning, I went back up to, to the apartment where her son was staying and I spoke with one of his teammates and said, look, like, what's the current situation? Uh, you know, what, what's going on? And he said, what do you mean? The money was found two hours ago. And I said, what do, you, what do you mean the money was found? So why, why is my coach still asking for a meeting to be had between us? And so I then get a, a flurry of further text messages from her in which she says, was the money found before or after? Uh, sorry, did you return to the apartment before or after I had spoken to you on the phone? I need to know your whereabouts from when the money was stolen. I need to know what you and your teammate did in terms of how many times you went back to the apartment and at what times. And I said, well, yeah, of course, we went back up to the apartment. We were trying to, to dilute the situation and help them find the money. If we just sat there and did nothing, then we're, we're not exactly, you know, the people that they would think that we were. So she's asking me all of these questions after the money had, had already been found. And I just started to realize that, wow, you recruited me since I was 16 years old and you think so little of me that you're, you think that I'm capable of stealing over a thousand dollars off of your son in in this kind of situation like it, to me it just was the cherry on top in terms of like disrespect and and trust and and I just said you know what like I I need to wash my hands with this um this has gone beyond basketball and how can I how can I step into a program and give my all every day for someone and um be as upset as I am and this is how she truly feels about me like this it, it was enough for me and when you reach that point which clearly it's untenable to remain part of that team etc but how, how do you extricate yourself formally from that because it's you know you're at a great college you want the degree 
you don't want to have to be jumping in a plane immediately overnight and all, lose everything that you or lose what gains you can get from the situation so but how do you get yourself out of that in terms of cutting the tie with the team so it was actually interesting i still um i spoke to the sports psychologist um and having known that my conversation with him it was kind of a tactical in the sense that i knew that he would then take from my conversation what he needed and translate that to the head coach so I called him quite immediately and said, but look, it's, it's kind of urgent. I need to speak to you this morning. We have practice this afternoon, but there's something that's come up. Explained the situation to him and um, everything that had happened. I said, look, I'm just not happy to walk into practice without an apology. You know, I was accused of a lot of things yesterday um, and I feel very disrespected and I don't feel comfortable just walking into practice and just brushing everything under the rug. Um, on top of which, the, the teammate that was being accused probably more heavily than me was being done so because of her background and uh, where she'd come from. Everyone had had assumed that, oh, you know, she doesn't have as much money or she comes from a certain background and therefore, you know, it, it must have been her that took the money. And, and to me, that was probably more hurtful than the accusations that, that were thrown towards me. And so I felt like myself and her were owed a big apology. And so I communicated this with the sports psychologist and we were then called into the locker room pre-practice and... We sat down and the head coach said, uh, I'm sorry for how you felt last night. Not I'm sorry for how she made us feel or for any kind of accountability for her own actions. Just I'm sorry for how you felt. And I thought, no, like that's that's not acceptable. And so I go down to the locker room and I get ready for practice um, with everyone else. And I, and I come up the stairs and, and I think my assistant coaches can tell that I'm angry. And they pull me to one side and they said, look like we agree with you Christina we understand that she acted like completely unacceptably like uh we completely take your side on this matter but you know you've got to get through practice let's like talk about this afterwards I said okay and then I was in practice and I think I drove to the basket or made some kind of move and the same girl that had been re recruited over me my sophomore year fouled me um quite badly like to the extent that like I'm on the baseline like laying on the ground after trying to go up for a layup and no foul was called and they, they call it out of bounds and start to try and go the other way and at this point it was for me almost a microcosm from my from my college experience it didn't matter what I did the assistant coaches wanted to appease the head coach so if if I'd done something and calling a foul for me would make her angry then they would just leave it and that's what they did in that moment. And I think I just had enough. And I turned around and I said, like, that's not a foul. And they looked at me like, calm down, Christina. And I was like, so I just went up for the layup, got pushed in the back, landed on the ground in front of you. And it's not a foul. And they sort of like become very uncomfortable because I've never challenged them like this before. I just sort of like absorbed it and carried on, tried to go get a stop on defense. Um, and in hindsight, I'm, I would say I'm a little bit ashamed for how I reacted in that situation, but I was just, I had so many emotions and so much anger. And I then went on to, I got subbed out and I spoke to one of the other assistants and he was like, Christina, like, calm down. You know, it's not that serious. You know, you, you, yeah, you probably did get fouled, but like, you know, it's okay. And I sort of just lost the plot and started ranting at him. And I think my head coach could overhear the situation. And I just said, you know what? It's not okay. And it's not been okay. And I started to sort of just, go through a bit of a rant of, of how I felt in that current moment um, to the point in which I was sent down to the locker room to calm down. Uh, no one was going to throw me out of practice because everyone knew that I was 
you know, justified almost in my behavior in that moment because of how coach had treated me the night before. Um, but I went down to the locker room and I sat in my locker and it was a, it's a moment that I'll probably never forget. And I think just the light bulb went off in my head and I said, that's it. I'm done. I'm not just done with this practice. I'm done in general. And I started to pack up my locker and put everything, you know, completely cleared it out. Even took my name tag out of my locker, walked away and got back to my apartment. And I started to think, you know, how can I, how can I get out of this situation um, but still graduate and have my degree because ultimately I chose to come to Fordham because it was an academic school um, and I wanted to ensure that, you know, I set myself up for the, the best possible uh, future. And so I sat there and I was discussing with one of my other friends outside of basketball and I said, look, like, I think I have a point of leverage. And I sort of had a bit of a smile on my face. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, all of this happened and she's acted very unprofessionally However, she's in such a powerful position. And the reason as to why she's allowed to continue to behave how she is, is because she wins. And, you know, college basketball in America is, is cutthroat. It's based on wins and losses. If you don't win as a coach, you know, you're cut. And then someone else comes in and is, is tries to, to, you know, do as, as they want. And so I said, they're not going to want to get rid of her. Um, but they're going to have to if I tell my truth or the story of, of at least what's happened recently, but probably moreover, more of the other events that have happened as well. Um, and the girl responded and said, yeah, but Christina, you've tried this before and you've tried to give feedback before to the, the women's athletic director and you know that her relationship with the coach and you're never going to get anywhere. And I said, well, maybe we don't involve her. Maybe we go straight to the, the head athletic director um, we know that their relationship isn't as strong. Um, he's new to the, to the school, fairly new. And I think that he'll take it seriously. And she said, okay, so what's your, like, what's your position going to be? And I said, well, I can tell them that, you know, if, if I tell them what I know and what has happened, they're going to have to launch an investigation with the coach. And if they don't want to do that, then here are my terms. And I sat there in that meeting and I listed what my terms would be that I wanted to graduate and I wanted all of the privileges that I currently have with none of the responsibilities I don't want to have to go to team practice I don't want to have to travel with the team I don't want to have to do you know community service or academic advisory hours or anything that was related to the team I didn't want any part of as far as they are concerned I'm not a basketball player anymore but I want to continue to have my degree and have my classes and um, all of the other benefits that come with being an athlete he didn't even hesitate. He said, okay, Christina, that's done. I mean, it's a horrific tale of, of woe from start to finish. And, you know, obviously for someone like yourself, clearly a bright, you know, sparky young woman going into this situation when you come out of it. And you, again, you know, you can sit back a few years later now when you go back. What, if people are listening to this and, you know, parents who are coaches who want to send their kids on, on scholarship or, who maybe even have kids or, or, or former co kids of coach on, on you know that are in the states or, or elsewhere i mean for you what what should they learn what should they understand and and be wary of look out for be vigilant and and even possibly even for coaches you know who are involved in the game what should they learn from your story i think the most important thing to understand from a funda fundamental perspective is but growing up playing basketball in this country, you are 
surrounded by people that are very passionate about the game. Their number one reason for being in basketball is because they're passionate about the game. There's not a tremendous amount of money, and that's not a secret in this country. And um, we're constantly reminded that we're an underfunded sport and an underrepresented sport. But as soon as you step foot in America on college campuses, you become immediately aware that you're surrounded by um, and inundated with with you know f- with financial support. And so, whether that means in terms of what what people regularly know in terms of receiving Nike gear, you know, three or four pairs of shoes and, and t-shirts and tracksuits. But what people don't realize behind the scenes is you're going from a situation where you're supported and encouraged and developed. And, um, you, you know, you're surrounded by people that are passionate and share the same passion and excitement that you do to a situation that is business minded, um, you know, from the start focused on winning at all costs. Um, whereas over here, yes, you know, I was part of programs that, that did win and, and we were very successful, but they also cared about us as individuals because at the end of the day, their job or their career or their um, future didn't ride off the back of solely winning. Like it, it didn't have the same level of cutthroat that it, that it does in, in America. And so this sort of financial difference, I think, is the the primary reason as to why it's so different here and um, versus in America. And in terms of um, what can we do to to better prepare both athletes, coaches, and and parents to understand and, and make a more informed decision, I think we just have to ask better questions. Um, I think I, like I said, when I was at Barking Abbey and looking to go to the states, no one had graduated and, and come back, so. I asked a lot of questions, but I don't know that I was asking the correct questions, the the sort of questions that a coach wouldn't be able to hide behind, Um, you know? And so, and it's difficult because when you're 17 or 18, you don't necessarily even know what you should be asking, but that's why I think it's important that, you know, you, whoever attends these recruiting visits or whoever's, you know, a part of this recruiting process with you, asks the right questions or suggests to you some of the right questions to ask. And what are those right questions? So I think if, if you're being specific in terms of like playing, um, I think the right question would depend on whom you're asking. And so for me, I my one of my biggest regrets is when I went to the school to visit, not having asked the the players that are currently there more questions about their current experience and how they like the coach and how does the coach deal with a certain situation oh how much do you play oh and and how do you how does coach behave towards you you know and then ask someone else who's you know considered a star of the program and, and leads in terms of scoring in minutes well how does coach treat you and see if there's any sort of difference because yes they want to pitch to you that it's this amazing program etc but I think we're observant enough human as human beings in that if you were to ask those questions to two very different people within the program, you could tell by their body language and response immediately as to whether there was any kind of discrepancy. And, and obviously, you know, people might feel um, a certain level of resentment for a multitude of reasons, but ask those questions to, to the players, have a lot of more in-depth conversations with the players to understand what the culture and the environment of the program that you're going into is. And then in terms of asking the coaches um, questions, I think you need to be very direct. I was quite shy and um, worried about, you know, saying the wrong thing because because I'm thinking, you know, 
I want this scholarship. This is everything that I've ever wanted. And so I didn't want to come across um, in any way negatively. Um, but, but what you have to realize is that you're an asset to them and you should be an asset to them. And they want you just as much as you want them. And if they don't, then there's probably an issue there. Um, and so don't feel intimidated um, to ask questions such as, you know, what do you, how do you see me fitting into your program? And, and how exactly do you think that I will evolve um, throughout my four years as, as an athlete on your program? You know, what do you see some of my strengths and, and weaknesses it are? Because if I had have asked those questions to my coach, I probably would have realized that she sees me as a five that rebounds and wants to post up and set screens and be, a, you know, an out and out five when all throughout my career, I was a stretch four. And so if I don't fit into her program um, in the way that, you know, I fit into other programs in the past, and if my advantages aren't something that she recognized and wants in a player, then that's an issue right away. Um, and you should be able to, you should be able to tell that. And, and also I think something else that you can do is watch game footage, watch how the current style of play is, watch what, um, how the coach responds. You know, if you're, if you're lucky enough to see a game, watch how they respond and how they talk to the athletes. Um, there's just a lot more that, that we can do that, that, that can give you a better indication. And we're never going to be a hundred percent correct. You know, you have to, you have to take a gamble and you're, you're going to have to make a decision one way or the other. But I think the second part of all of this is having the right support. And that's something that I'm really passionate about now. And I would say that anyone that's listening to this, if you want to reach out to me, um, and ask for advice, if you're a current athlete in the States or you're looking to go to the States, um, I'm always a resource and someone that will they'll absolutely listen. You finish at Fordham. On a scale of 1 to 10, how done are you with basketball? 12. <laughs> <laughs> so you're working, you're working in New York and you've still got your visa, so you might as well make the most of it. Why not? Everyone wants to spend a bit of time in the Big Apple. But, but what gets you, what's the little nibble that tempts you back into playing basketball again? Uh, it's hard to say specifically. I just think when you go from being an athlete, that's like a big part of your identity. You grow up and, and you're Christina, the girl that plays basketball, or, you know, the basketball player, or, you know, if you've got siblings in the game, you're the brother or sister of someone else that plays. And it's a big part of, of who you are. And, and as much as I thoroughly enjoyed working and living in New York, I still felt like I lost a part of myself when I gave up playing basketball. Um, and I was fortunate enough, actually, during my college experience to, to come back and train with the senior women um, with Damien uh, Jennings at the time. And I think for me, I realized in that short, like sort of summer camp experience that actually, you know what, how I feel right now towards basketball is, is just a result of the experience that I've gone through. It's not actually how I feel about the game. And I feel like there is still some love there somewhere. It just needs to be reignited in the right way. Um, and returning to London and starting to work in London, I realized, you know what, we have a long time to, to work and, and to, to work a nine to five and to, to lead what I would call a regular life um, outside of basketball. And I just wanted to, to maximize the opportunity to be able to play as long as possible. So that's, I think, what led me to, to join London Lions, um, to be back at Barking Abbey and then I took a pro contract after two years and I played in Italy last year which um, really solidified for me that you know I do love the game and I will try and play as long as possible. 
what's that sort of contrast like? Because you know you've had this hideous period of time where basketball's a chore, and it's the negativity that that psychologically that surrounds basketball builds up, and then you get to go and play in Italy in a place called Margera Giants or a team called Margera Giants, and you know it's a beautiful country, not a bad place to spend it, you know six months of the year. Describe the contrast between what you did have and the fun part of what you what you have last year. So, I mean, it was it was night and day for me. And it was interesting because I guess I never assumed that I would, after college, especially how college went, that I would ever receive a, a pro contract to go and play. And I was very grateful that I was contacted by an agent that worked very hard for me um, to find a good fit. And I guess in my mind, I always thought that playing professionally would be harder than than college just because you know you're considered a professional now you're no longer an amateur you know you're paid to to play the game and so therefore surely you're going to be held to a higher standard and you're going to have more expectations on you than than you would have when you were at college and for me that wasn't the case when I went to to Italy you know it it was a wonderful experience I played both um just outside of Rome and then like you said in in Venice towards the the end of the year and Yes, it was a professional environment. Um, yes, there were a lot of expectations on me in terms of performance um, as one of the import players. But there was a certain enjoyment to the game. You know, you were allowed to laugh in practice when it was appropriate. You were allowed to, like, have fun with the girls. Like, you weren't expected to, you know, sprint and be working out for three and a half hours of team practice a day and to come in and do weights and to come in, you know, and do all these additional workouts. Like, you became in control of your own process in terms of your own personal success and development. Whereas in college, every aspect of what you did was scheduled and controlled for you. So it's in a way it's like the level of freedom and independence allowed me just to step on the basketball court and enjoy the game again, not to think about, you know, how I was going to be treated as a result or, you know, how was I going to, you know, be able to schedule this class to be able to coordinate with this practice and um, how was I going to deal with this mentally deal with this situation everyone just wanted you to succeed as much as possible and and when you're playing in a pro environment best case scenario they do as much as they can to ensure that's the case so for me it was a breath of fresh air and especially being in Italy it's a beautiful country with wonderful people I'm just sad right now that you know they're experiencing what they are um, because it's a really wonderful culture and I would for anyone that's coming out of college and, and considering, you know, where they want to go and play pro, I would definitely look into to Italy. It's, it's a great experience. Great food. And what you can't really go Wonderful wrong. food. Yeah. Wonderful food. <laughs> the, um, I mean, you come back here and obviously you, you're doing your master's in marketing at Loughborough alongside playing for, for Leicester this season. Um, let's talk about Leicester first. You come, you have obviously the great victory in the trophy final. You guys could have, possibly won the league we'll we will never know without that it's mm-hmm. it's been cancelled but did last last weekend in glasgow did that feel like a a satisfactory ending for you guys you need to pick up a medal or does it still feel like oh, there was something left on the table there albeit under the circumstances we all find ourselves just now well i think that i think any basketball player or you know in more generally speaking any athlete right now would say that they would have unfinished business. But I like to reflect and say that we're very, very fortunate in the sense that we had the opportunity to be in a final at this stage in the year and to, you know, coincidentally 
be able to play that final right before the season was suspended or ended the, the very next uh, week. So I'm very grateful for that experience. I know that it does still feel very strange, but I would say it feels less strange for us having had the opportunity to compete in a final than it does for other teams around the league who are just, you know, competing towards playoffs and then suddenly told, actually, no, everything's finished. So... Did it feel like for you like that was the right decision to go ahead with the final? Because obviously lots of people have gone back and forth on this. So there was a lot of, obviously there was a lot of controversy around whether the game should be played or not. Um, we went into a meeting on Friday before the game um, in which Jesper sort of sat us down and had a very serious talk and said, look, I don't think any of us in the room fully appreciated the situation until he had this conversation with us. And he said, look, a lot of leagues around the world, and I've, I've had a lot of phone calls from players and coaches today, are being shut down and they will not play in any more games come Monday. We're in a very rare situation where our game is due to go ahead right now and we have the opportunity to be in a final, something that we've you know, prepared for since the beginning of the year. And you know, if that final does go ahead, I just want you guys to, to have in your mind that this will be the, probably the very last go-around for this team together this year. And so for me, that sort of, I don't, I would be wrong to say that I didn't want to play in the final because I did. I'm a competitor and um, although I was aware of the risks and the, the sort of the current situation with the coronavirus, I wanted to, to go out of the season on a high. And so selfishly, like I wanted to play and unless someone told me, whether that be scientists or a government official or someone with the sort of necessary experience that it wasn't safe to play and that we were putting ourselves and other people at risk, then I was prepared to do that because I think at the moment, a lot of people are speaking on a topic that they don't fully understand. Um, and that we're listening to the media and we're listening to um, what some of the, the stats are saying, but we can only trust that scientists and the people that fully understand, you know, virus control and, and how to, deal with this situation are making the right decisions for us um and I don't think that I'm someone that can sit here and speculate as to whether the final should or shouldn't have gone ahead because I don't I don't have the necessary like qualifications or understanding to to understand the risk if that makes sense at least it was a great final for to bring yeah. down the season to you know down the curtain on the season absolutely just a few things before we let you go GB you've had a little taste of it is that something that's still very much part of the ambitions um i i think post the commonwealth i really trained hard for the commonwealth games and i'm not shy to say that like that was a goal of mine and i fell short and um, so i put a lot of time into to trying to make that a, a reality and so after that mentally i've it's not something that I would never want to say I don't want to play national team. I think it's it would it's always has been and always will be an honour for me to be called up to play national team. But just knowing how much effort and commitment I put into trying to make the, the Commonwealth Games team, I've sort of said to myself now, focus on your own game, focus on your own development and, and what you can do to improve yourself. And if national team becomes a part of that, then then great. But if it doesn't, then that's also okay. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And you've got the masters in in marketing that you're finishing off at, at Loughborough. What what are you going to do with it? What's the plan? So I actually do marketing consulting uh, mm -hmm. as well uh, on the side. So um, I have various clients um, across different industries, 
Um, and it works quite well for me because it allows me to, to fit it in flexibly around everything else in terms of training, um, school and any other sort of ambitions that I have. Um, but I'm also quite passionate about um, this topic and, and I'm working a little bit with Basketball England right now to put together some kind of educational resource um, for elite athletes that are on the pathway to go to the States and to be able to advise parents, um, coaches and the athletes themselves as to exactly what um, it entails and, and how they can be best prepared. And do you, I mean, do you see that as a, you know, as something that you, I mean, obviously with alongside the, the, the company work that you've done, but do you see that there's something that I guess British basketball in general needs to be better at in terms of joining up the thinking between, between development, between progress, whether it's college or whether it's staying here or whether it's going into Europe, whether it's playing professionally, where it's the way it sells itself. I mean, sitting back with all these varied experiences that you've got, where's the next leap in, in this sport going to be taking in some of those things that you've been through? I just think that we need to fill the gaps in terms of where some of the ignorance lies. Um, I think a lot of people are fully aware and year on year, we still continue to send a lot of athletes to the States. And I'm not going to sit here and say that's not a wonderful thing and a great opportunity. I mean, my scholarship was worth um, over a quarter of a million dollars. So it was a great opportunity for me. But I think that we do have a responsibility as a larger governing body and institution to educate elite athletes better. And I think one of the, one of the things that's really missing right now as well is we need to challenge the idea that the American dream is, is the only dream that a, a athlete should have at the age of 14, 16, looking to, to continue their basketball career. Because there are plenty of athletes like take Carl Wheatle. He's um, he didn't go to, to college in the States and, and he went straight to play professionally in Italy and, and has a, had a great career and continues to do very well. Um, but unfortunately, it feels like not going to college or looking at other pathways, staying in this country or, you know, going to Europe are secondary to getting to America. And I think what I'm seeing more and more recently, which is is a little sad, is that people want to get to America at all costs. And, and whereas, you know, back when I think Lloyd Gardner used to say to me, look, if you're good enough, they'll find you. You know, if you're good enough as, as a player, they will recruit you and you will be contacted you don't need to do so much in terms of sending out highlight tapes and sending out film tapes. And, and quite often, sometimes uh, I feel like people try and get to America at all costs and accept um, scholarships to be in situations that are far from ideal. And then they end up returning one or two years later, having not completed their degree um, to then go to a university over here. Um, and, have we done them a disservice as an organization and as a basketball community by, you know, it has someone had a conversation with them and at some point and said, you know, maybe going to America is not the best opportunity for you. Maybe, you know, you're not someone that wants to study academically. So therefore, why would we put you in that environment, perhaps going and playing pro and taking some online courses and educating yourself in a different way would be a better option. Um, there are people that, that you know that are great at that and that do have the right conversations. Namely, I know from my experience, Lloyd and, and James at, at Barkin. Um, but I think we need more people to have those discussions, and I think they need to be coming from um, British basketball and England basketball as a whole, and and not just be you know left to people's parents and people's coaches that may 
or may not have the answers or have the experience to know to know exactly what they're talking about. Well, lots of people, I think, will have learned plenty from hearing your experiences, the good, the bad, and quite the ugly at certain points in time. If you want to reach out to Christina, as she has said, she is on Twitter at Christina Gaskin. Her blog's at christinagaskin.squarespace.com. Christina, wish you well in these times of trauma and whatever isolation that you need to do and continued good luck with your career on and off the court. And thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. That's it for this edition of the MVP cast. You can get all our editions via our website at mvp247.com or your favourite podcast provider. Another edition coming very soon. But from me, Mark Woods, it's bye for now. Bye.